Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This is your source for market intelligence, forecasts, and success strategies. Well, today we have a great show for you. We're going to talk about advanced 1031 exchange strategies. Now, first we're going to talk about some of the basics of 1031s, but then stay with us. We're going to get into some more advanced strategies. My guest is Ricky Novak. He's CEO of Strategic 1031 Exchange Advisors here joining us in Studio One. Ricky, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here as always. Well, Ricky, let's first start with some of the basics on the on the timelines for a delayed 1031 exchange. Sure. Just as a reminder, you know, 1031 works for any kind of like kind property and when you look at the timing uh, the taxpayer has 45 days from the day they sell the relinquished property so let's talk in 1031 exchange terminology right, right. the property you're selling is your relinquished property right. so 45 days to identify potential replacement property and then a total of 180 days to actually close on that replacement property okay and you talked about like kind. Let's explain that because I think some people are confused and they're selling a, an apartment complex and they may not realize they can go into single tenant net lease properties, right? It, that's like kind. It's investment for investment. Absolutely. Okay. That's probably one of the biggest misconceptions. You know, like kind uh, really is focused on as long as it's it's used as an investment or used within a trade or business. When you look at real property, which that's what real estate is, mm -hmm. there's a very broad definition. So an apartment complex is like kind to a retail shopping center, is like kind to a warehouse building, is like kind to an office building. So there's a lot of flexibility built into what like kind actually means. Yeah. And it can be great. So even if you were holding land that was held for investment purposes, you could sell that maybe that has no income and move that money into an investment property that's shooting off a bunch of income and it's still like kind if it was held for investment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You can move from non property that's not producing cash flow to property that is. You can diversify, meaning you can sell one larger asset, maybe diversify into several smaller, or do the reverse, right? Consolidate, uh, take a bunch of smaller assets, sell them at one time, and exchange into one larger income producing property. Right. And let's talk about something that uh, concerns a lot of people when they have a, a large amount of money and they're giving that to an intermediary to hold until they find their replacement property. How should you go about choosing your intermediary? Sure, so the IRS requires a qualified intermediary to serve in that role, kind of like a third-party facilitator, if you will, of the transaction. So the key is you're handing potentially millions of dollars uh, to this qualified intermediary that maybe you don't really know much about. So yeah. you know, how do you know your money's safe? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things you may want to do. Um, certainly, you can ask for references. You know, find out you know, what other you know well-known, respectable uh, advisory firms work with them. Right? You know, find out you know which real estate brokers work with them, law firms, accounting firms, et cetera. Um, also, you want to understand what they're doing with your money while they hold it. Uh, currently, under the, the laws as they, they, they sit, uh, there really is very limited protection in place for taxpayers. There's no current oversight of the industry. So you really want to look at what is this intermediary doing, and are they tying their own hands? Are they using qualified escrows, qualified trusts? Uh, dual authorization bank accounts, keeping the funds liquid, things of that nature. So an intermediary right now could put your money in, in a, a risky investment. That's what you have to be careful of. Uh, yeah. During the last recession, 
you had people that, you know, the intermediary, because there really is limited oversight and regulation, you had intermediaries that were taking money and they were going and buying real estate on their own with it oh. or putting it in very illiquid investments. So you really want to understand and read. Here's something all real estate people uh, understand. Read the contract, understand what you're agreeing to and what that intermediary might be doing with your money. Good advice. Let's talk about the ID uh, process on a delayed exchange. You said you have normally 45 days and then 180 days to close on the replacement property. Correct. What if you hit the end of a tax year or a tax reporting? That's an important point, Michael. Mm -hmm. um, it's the earlier to occur of your tax reporting deadline or the 180th day. So if you look at the calendar and realize that your next tax reporting deadline falls 40 days before the 180-day deadline, you're going to want to file an extension for your tax return. Otherwise, you have to have the exchange completed at the time that you meet that filing requirement. Okay. And then how many properties can someone choose so, to, to identify? Sure. So the rules allow up to three properties of any value whatsoever. Uh, and so if you sell a property or relinquish property for a million dollars, you can go out and identify three one million dollar dollar general stores right and so each one's a million dollars as long as you close on one you'll meet your exchange requirement okay. if you identify more than three which you are allowed to do you then have to pay attention to value what the IRS is trying to protect against is the taxpayer just throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and trying to see what sticks. Right. They want to know that you have a legitimate plan and a legitimate intent to complete And we exchange. brokers appreciate that. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, right? You want to yeah. know that the person's serious. Yeah. Uh, so if you identify more than three, you have to make sure that the aggregate value, and by value I would argue the actual listed price, right. the aggregate value of what you identify does not exceed by more than twice the sales price of your relinquished property. Okay. So it's called the 200% rule. Okay, all right, very good. And what if, so you need to spend all of your boot, uh, that you, all your cash you got out of the, the, the property you sold, you have to spend all that to completely defer taxes, right? And then what about the debt that you had on the property you sold? All right, so we're gonna keep the math limited so that nobody turns the show off right here in the <laughs> early you. part of it. Uh, but two rules of math to, to keep mm -hmm. in mind. One, you want your target replacement property, whether you buy one or you buy two or you buy five, you want your target replacement property value to equal or exceed the sales price of your relinquished property. So that's the first kind of math equation to keep in mind. The second is the interplay between debt and equity in the transaction. And what you want to remember is you want all of the net cash to roll forward into your replacement property and then the debt you were relieved of, you want to replace that with either new debt, new cash, or any combination of the two. So what, what the IRS is trying to protect against is they don't want you to do a cash out, right? They don't want you to pull all of your equity out of the deal. Okay, all right, well that's clear. What if um, a taxpayer is uh, sold their relinquished property and they're in their 45-day ID period and they don't uh, identify a property but they've already put the money with an intermediary? What is the proper process there? Sure, so you have an interplay between the IRS rules and the Treasury regulations. And what the Treasury regulations say is that during that 45-day period, you can't change your mind. So if you decide 30 days in that you cannot find any targeted replacement property, 
then the money has to stay with the intermediary until that 45-day ID period runs. And so on day 46, if you've not identified anything and you've not closed on anything, then you can go to the intermediary and say, I want to pull the plug. It's now day 46. Please give me my money back. Okay. And what if you do identify a property in the 45 days and then you decide not to close on it? So that's probably the most challenging fact pattern because we have a lot of clients that call us and say, gosh, I identified three properties, two have title issues, and the third, somebody else grabbed it before I could. I'm not going to do the exchange. Can I get my money back now? And the Treasury rules, the Treasury regulations stay that if you identify property, then you cannot pull the funds back out until the earlier of the completion of the exchange, meaning you actually close on one or more of those properties, or the 181st day. So unless there's a natural disaster or something else that occurs where the IRS comes out with a you know get out of jail free card, yeah. uh, those funds have to sit with the intermediary for the uh, duration of the exchange. And those are some important facts. And if you're dealing with an intermediary who would let you identify property, not close, and give you your money before 180 days, you better watch out because you might not have the right intermediary, right? That could be a major problem. There's actually an instance where an intermediary was accommodating all of his clients and doing whatever they asked. The IRS actually came in and invalidated all of the exchanges. Yeah, watch out. Well, stay with us next. We're gonna explore some advanced 1031 exchanges, so stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Check out Valuate, a real estate analysis program that can be easily shared with colleagues online to do what-if analysis. Visit getvaluate.com. That's getvaluate.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by Excelligent, building data everywhere. If you haven't checked out Excelligent, do. It's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T dot com. Well, today we're talking advanced 1031 exchange strategies. My guest is Ricky Novak. He's CEO of Strategic 1031 Exchange Advisors. And Ricky, in the previous segment, we talked about some of the basics of 1031 exchanges. Now I'd like to get a little more involved ones because I think they're very interesting. All the things that you can do with the 1031 are just incredible. And, and we've been doing them here in our shop for 30 years. I, I just love them. And one of those is a reverse exchange, right? And wasn't the first exchange a reverse? And tell us how that would work. Yeah, a reverse exchange is a great tool, you know, especially in today's market, right? We have, you know, a fairly frothy market in some areas. We have a lot of competition for real estate. So one of the concerns is if you're going to sell your property in a 1031 exchange, will you find good solid replacement property? That's what people are worried about. Absolutely. Uh, So the reverse exchange is a great fit. Assuming that the taxpayer has the financial capability of doing this, Essentially what it allows you to do is identify and purchase replacement property before you ever sell your relinquished property. Uh, The difference is the taxpayer is not allowed to directly take title to this property. So what happens is the intermediary steps in and serves as an accommodating title holder. So the taxpayer has to fund 
the intermediary as this accommodating title holder to go out and buy the property and hold it. And now, once you hold this property, the goal is to sell the relinquished property and then in order to wrap up the reverse, the intermediary transfers the property that has been held by the accommodating title holder. So it's called a reverse because essentially you're buying the replacement property first, selling the relinquished property second. And was the very first 1031 exchange, the Starker, was that a reverse? Uh, Starker was a forward exchange. What was a forward um, you know, So you know, if you look at those exchange rules, you know, when people looked at Starker, you know, it was a, was it okay mm -hmm. to use this intermediary to step into this kind of transaction? Right. So do you still have the same time periods to sell your relinquished property from the date you bought the replacement? So if you look at a reverse exchange mm -hmm. and you want to follow the safe harbor rules, so whenever the IRS wants to give you a blueprint and tell you if you follow these rules, we guarantee you that you'll get the benefit you're hoping for. Yeah. In a reverse exchange, if you follow the safe harbor, you still have to wrap everything up in 180 days. So from the day the intermediary through the accommodating title holder acquires this property for you, you have 45 days to identify what you want to sell, okay. and then a total of 180 days to both sell it and acquire the property. We call it the parked property, right? The property right. the accommodating title holder has been holding. 180 days to acquire that. Now that's the safe harbor. Uh, last year, interesting, there was a new case that came out called Estate of Bartell. Uh, and in that state, the taxpayer essentially took much longer than 180 days to complete the exchange. And there have been previous things out there on these non-safe harbor reverses where the taxpayer took longer than 180 days to complete everything. But based on this recent case, uh, a lot of people feel very comfortable that in any reverse exchange format, you actually can go beyond 180 days now. But just in the reverse format? Correct, only okay. in reverse exchanges, so a reverse a reverse construction, anything where an acquisition is the first step to the exchange. Okay. Well, in the situation where the taxpayer, the investor, has the money to acquire the replacement property first, I think that's golden because most of the properties out there today, if you want to sell it quick, well, we can sell it quick. Right. You know, give us a call. <laughs> so it's easier to sell today than sometimes to find that replacement property. That's exactly the case. Right. And so, you know, reverse is a great, great tool in today's particular yeah. market. And you're an intermediary. So I guess at any time, then uh, there's a lot of properties. So you're, you're a big property owner. <laughs> we do. Uh, CoStar calls us all the time wanting information. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. And brokers like us calling, hey, we you sell that? No, it's parked. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, so the ID process. I think some of the questions I get from from uh, people that call me and, and email me from the show uh, say, "Well, what is the actual ID process?" So I've, I've got that forty-five day period, whether it's a reverse or just a standard delayed. Uh, what are the requirements for IDing a property? So, if you look at the ID period, the important thing is you have to unambiguously identify the property. You have to be clear. It's not, uh, not every dollar store in Georgia. <laughs> exactly, right? You have to give yeah. the actual address or the legal description of the property. Also, if you're doing a construction exchange where the improvements are part of the replacement property, you also have to be able to identify the to-be-completed improvements. Okay. And who do you give that notice to? Your intermediary? So, 
If you ask me the question, the answer is yes. If you read the tax code, it says the taxpayer actually can identify to any disinterested third party. <laughs> well, that creates a lot of chaos. So yeah. we actually ask our clients to identify to us so we can have a copy of it in the file in case they're ever audited by the IRS. Okay, and speaking of disinterested, that brings up another thing I think that some people do wrong in some cases. When choosing your intermediary, can it be your broker that's helping you with the transaction or your attorney that's helping you with the transactions? So again, if you look at what the rules say, the rules say that you cannot have had any kind of agency relationship with your intermediary within the two preceding uh, years. So, you know, your real estate broker, if you've been transacting with them, your attorney, um, anyone that you already have a pre-established agency relationship with is precluded from serving in that capacity. Right, and I've had people ask us to be their intermediary, and I'm like, first of all, I'd rather you do some, have someone an intermediary that's experienced that does it all the time, that's tax attorney like you, Ricky. But also, I want to be their broker, really. I want to sell the property and find a replacement property. So if the broker's involved in that, then he can't really be the intermediary, right? Well, and there are a lot of rules, too, right? Yeah. So as a broker, why would you want to take the liability on your yeah. shoulders yeah. of not complying with the tax rules uh, because that's not your area of expertise? Right. Uh, you know, where we see the problem most prominent is in smaller towns, right? Where you look at it and you know the best real estate attorney also does seven other things and it's the guy you trust because you went to school with him so you're going to ask him to serve as your intermediary. Right, right. Well let's talk about construction exchange. That's another exchange that uh, is a great strategy for a lot of people. Absolutely. Uh, again, looking in today's environment, uh, a lot of people are looking for value-add opportunities. Um, also, people may be selling an asset. They can't find a quality replacement property, so if they could buy some dirt and build, you know, uh, do the vertical construction, that may work better for them. So a construction exchange allows you uh, to not only acquire property, but improve that property so that the value of the purchase price plus improvements gets you to your target replacement. Again, the intermediary is serving in two roles, right? You have your intermediary, but they're also serving as the accommodating title holder, meaning they're holding that property while those improvements are being completed. Okay, and that could be a ground up construction or just some renovations? Absolutely, either one works. So you, know, you sell a property for $12 million and you go find a great $10 million replacement, instead of paying tax on that $2 million, you can put it into the, you know, the value add uh, retrofit on the property. Okay, quick answer. I've got 100000 left. I've, I've 1031 everything else, but I've got 100000 to boot left. What happens? Um, you pay tax on it unless you've maybe identified other property you can go purchase uh, so you have multiple replacements. Yeah, all right. All right, well, stay with us. We're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about some more 1031 strategies, including mistakes to avoid. That's one of the big things you want to watch out for with a 1031. And we're going to talk about some best practices. We've been doing 1031 exchanges for 30 years. And I think some people, when they're in the situation, are running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And I'll give you some ideas to make the process smoother. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show.
Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Are you in commercial real estate brokerage? Check out Apto. Created by and for commercial real estate brokers, Apto is the leading web-based platform for managing relationships, properties, listings, deals, and back office. Visit apto.com slash CRE show. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. This segment is brought to you by Apto, your brokerage in the cloud. Visit apto.com. Well, today we're talking 1031 exchange strategies with Ricky Novak, CEO of Strategic 1031 Exchange Advisors. And in just a moment, in the next segment, we're going to talk about some mistakes to avoid and some tips for doing 1031s. But in this segment, I'd like to ask you about the fate of the 1031, because it seems like we're hearing from some people that, that, well, it seems like we hear it every year, but it seems like, is there more push this year to adjust or abolish the 1031 exchange? So you're right, you know, we hear about it all the time. Every time Congress talks about raising revenue, one of the first things that gets thrown on the table is the 1031 exchange. Uh, and very, very quickly, it tends to get pulled off the table. Uh, what has happened is over the last two years, there's been this kind of stickiness, if you will, to the concept of either eliminating or making major changes to 1031. Uh, so for the first time in a long time, uh, it's a legitimate concern that people need to have. So what would be the impact of the 1031? How big is that to, to the economy? Well, look, you're talking about something that involves billions upon billions of dollars of transactions. Uh, Ernst & Young performed a very detailed study on you know, what they thought the impact to the economy would be. And the, the problem is you don't just impact you know, the taxpayer, right? You have an impact to attorneys, uh, to banks, to other you know, financial institutions that lend for real estate transactions title companies, insurance companies, real estate brokers and agents. I mean, there is a massive tri trickle-down effect. And what is actually being discussed currently is a proposal that would limit the deferral benefit to $1 million per taxpayer per year. Mm, yeah, that, uh, that would not be good. No, I mean, you think <laughs> about big groups that do lots of exchanges, yeah. um, you know, if you're mom and pop and you're only selling a few properties per year and they're small properties, it doesn't affect you. Yeah. Uh, but if you're a, a larger organization or you're dealing with more institutional quality assets, this is a major concern you should have. Yeah, and I, and I like the point you're insinuating there that this is not just for rich people. This impacts everyone. You think about, like you mentioned, all the vendors and all the people, all the jobs involved. You know, you got the all the vendors who do the, the surveys and do the property condition assessments. You got the construction people who are involved in construction. It could have a really big impact. It absolutely could. Um, and what probably, you know, regarding of what side of the aisle you sit on when it comes to polit you know, politics, one of the biggest concerns here is, you know, you had something that was within the Obama administration budget. So it was something that the president was considered doing um, last year. And you saw House Republicans somewhat in alignment with that concept. So now you're not dealing with something that is just 
one political party's view. You're dealing with something that both political parties have actually taken a good hard look at, and it's gained some traction. And so, you know, the the hope is, um, you know, if you look at the current administration, we at least have someone in office now who understands a lot about commercial real estate. Uh, you know, if you look at the history of of, of the Trump organization, uh, he's not really been a seller of real estate, right? It's not something he's consistently done. So, you know, 1031 isn't really something personally he's probably benefited from, but it's certainly something he understands and can understand the impact of such a change. Right. And I think hopefully he would understand and have some influence on how that would hurt the economy, that there would be a big chunk of transactions and business that doesn't happen in all the people that make money and, and also the investment in the stock market that you have in those companies, in those banks, right? Well, I mean, look, we're, we're, we're all real estate people, right? And I think most real estate people will tell you that a lot of times, you know, you look at the last downturn, you know, real estate arguably took us into it, but real estate also really helped us come out of it. And so, you know, making a change that is this drastic, you know, no one is clear on just how far reaching the ripples could be. And we're in a period of time where we seem to have an economy that's got some traction to it. What could this mean for that economy? Right. And for the listeners and viewers who want to try to get to the politicians and let them know, hey, this is a big deal. This could really hurt the economy. Where can they get some information on it? So there's actually a website, uh, 1031taxreform.org, uh, I believe it is, and the focus there is really on what are some of the changes that are being proposed. You know, educate yourself, understand what is being proposed, understand how it could impact you, and then there's also information there on how you can reach out to decision makers, you know, your congressmen, your senators, to voice your concern. Um, the National Association of Realtors, uh, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, there are numerous organizations that are actively lobbying against this, uh, but ultimately, the more voices that are heard, the better. And the time to do this is now, right? Absolutely. Once the law, you know, once law change occurs, yeah. it's going to be really hard to change it back, right? right. So you want to hear your, ver you want your voice to be heard in Washington today while these decisions are being considered. Right, because the proposal is on the table right now, right? Absolutely. All right, so if you're watching or listening to this show, please get out there and uh, let the politicians know what you think. Uh, if, if you're like me, I think it could be devastating to the economy and certainly to everyone that's involved in any branch of commercial real estate, whether you're the lawyer, you're the appraiser, you're the surveyor, you're in construction, uh, you're in brokerage, you're in law. I mean, it, it could be pretty far-reaching. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, stay tuned. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to, on the next segment, we're going to talk about some strategies and tips and some mistakes to avoid. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Build Out, the best all-in-one marketing tool for your brokerage. Learn how you can create marketing materials instantly and streamline your property listings process. Visit buildout.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by Valuate. Check it out at getvaluate.com. This is online investment analysis that you can share with colleagues online to do what-if analysis. 
Today we're talking about advanced 1031 exchange strategies and Ricky Novak's here, he's CEO of Strategic 1031 Exchange Advisors. And uh, we're in Studio One and we've talked about some of the basic guidelines of 1031. We've talked about some of the advanced strategies and now I'd like to ask you about some oops, <laughs> some gotchas, some things, some mistakes to avoid. So I think the number one mistake that we see clients make is they just don't plan proactively. They wait to the last minute uh, and they, they miss the boat on some good planning opportunities. Specifically, let's go back to what we talked about in reverse exchanges, right? There is a limited pool of qualified replacement property out of there, out in the market today. So, you know, you want to work with good quality professionals. I mean, obviously, you know, I've worked with you and Bull Realty for years, right? When you have good quality agents who are educated on 1031, they can proactively help their clients start looking for properties early in the process. Because if you wait to the last minute, it's probably not going to work out the way you wanted it to. Yeah, that's a great tip and one thing I see people do in that regard is they look at the 45-day ID period and hope that they have some properties chosen or maybe they're a little uh, more advanced and they say they want to try to have a property or two under contract but what we try to get clients to do is, is look at that and know we want to have a property already inspected we already want to have done our due diligence because what you don't want in position is you're doing a 1031 you've chose a property got it under contract once we get into due diligence I'm your broker and I'm suggesting you not to buy the property <laughs> that's exactly it I mean you know if you look at timing yeah. I mean look how most contracts are written mm -hmm. you have a due diligence period mm -hmm. and the money goes hard and usually there's 15 or 30 days before you're closing yeah. once money goes hard and you're confident the deal's going to close you need to be aggressively looking for property don't just identify one have backup plans you can ID up to three yeah. so you you may be in love with the Walgreens in downtown Chicago yeah. but look for two additional locations as your backup yeah that's a good point and, and and I like your point about looking early and what I suggest to people is as soon as your replacement property goes under contract I would start looking because you really want to try to get a property under contract, do your due diligence before that 45-day period. Absolutely. And I guess another mistake would be to avoid, would be picking the wrong intermediary, right? That doesn't understand how to do it properly or maybe puts your, your money in an unsafe investment. Yeah, I mean, you want someone who you know is sophisticated enough to really understand the ins and outs, right? They're they're a player on the team, uh, and some intermediaries are more paper pushers. They're going to send the documents to closing, and anytime you ask them a question, they're going to say, "Oh, go to your tax advisor for that." You know, there's nothing wrong with your intermediary being able to give you some good information that you, the broker, others on your team can use. And so, look for an intermediary that's really willing to step in. Um, they're not allowed to be your tax advisor. That's what the IRS rules say, yeah. but that doesn't mean that they can't ever answer any questions whatsoever. Right. So. And another mistake to avoid, they can't be your real estate broker that's helping you do the deal. Right? Absolutely. You want that independent third party. Right. So what are some other mistakes, Ricky, that you see that, that people really make when they're doing 1031 exchanges? You know, some of the other mistakes we generally see are people not being fully aware of the rules. You know, uh, we, we can explain them to you, but you have to actually pay attention to them, right? And you have to incorporate them. Um, so having other people on the team, your outside third-party attorney, your real estate broker, who also are understanding those rules and helping you follow them. So I think that's pretty important. Uh, the other is letting, you know, making sure you understand all the options, right? The reverse exchange, the construction exchange, knowing that there are other 
potential exchange mechanisms you can use to help further the exchange process. Yeah, that's a good point. And sometimes I'll see a, a broker that's representing a seller on a 1031 and they're selling an invest property held for investment and they're doing a 1031 exchange into a vacation home or second home. Right, that can get a little risky, right? Right, because it has to be primarily held for investment. So if it's your vacation home, what's your primary reason for owning it? Is it for personal enjoyment or is it an investment, right? That's a, a pretty gray area. Uh, and so if you look at what the IRS has said, you know, you have to primarily hold the property as an investment. So if you do decide you want to buy a vacation home or second home, you need to really closely monitor what those rules say you can and cannot do with that property uh, once you buy it. And are there any hard guidelines there that say, hey, if you rent it out this many weeks or anything? Sure, there's a revenue procedure actually that came out several years ago. You know, the IRS saw this as an area of potential taxpayer abuse, mm -hmm. but they also saw it as an area where the taxpayer needed guidance. Right. Uh, so a revenue procedure came out and again, provided a safe harbor uh, and said, if you follow these rules, then we'll guarantee that it works. And generally, what it mandates is for about a two-year period, you really have to limit the personal use and you have to clearly be trying to rent the property out during that period of time. Okay, so you may have hired an agent to rent it, uh, and it could be a vacation rental or a weekly or monthly or annual rental, right? That's correct. Uh, and then can you later convert that to a personal use? You can. Um, okay. If you follow the safe harbor rules, you know, generally, as long as you treat it as an investment, for at least two years, then at some point you can convert it over to a primary residence or you can convert it into a, a you know, second home where you no longer really have an investment intent. Now, we all know that no one buys a mountain house or a beach house or a lake house without the intent of it being a good investment, uh, but it's more about the action that you take than just the mentality of thinking it's an investment. Right, right. So, mistakes to avoid. So, uh, pick the right intermediary. Um, kind of start early looking at properties uh, and of course you got to make sure you got the proper language in the contract of the property that you're selling the relinquished property right correct um, you know interestingly the IRS does not mandate uh, that the contract say anything about the 1031 but you are asking the other party to the transaction meaning if you're the, the seller the buyer yeah. right you're asking them to also cooperate yeah. so it's in your best interest to have language in the contract from day one that says they agree to cooperate with the exchange. You also have to make sure, you know, this is where the intermediary comes into play, you have to make sure that the correct documentation gets signed. There's a like-kind exchange agreement that has to be signed uh, amongst other documents. And so you need to make sure that in the event you're audited and the IRS says, show me the file, that you have all the necessary paperwork in, in, in that file. Right. And even the closing statement, uh, when it has the seller's name, does it have the intermediary? Correct, it yeah. should. It should yeah. show that the intermediary, um, as you know, it should say, as QI for the taxpayer. So it's clear there's a QI involved with that process. You know, again, if you read the rules on their face, there's a lot of gray where it doesn't tell you what you really need to do or not do. So having a knowledgeable intermediary and other knowledgeable players about 1031 on your team is really important when you're doing exchanges. Right. And let's talk about another mistake to avoid, and that's when you might be considered a dealer rather than an investor. That's right. Uh, if you're in the process of flipping property, which a lot of people, you know, it's not you know, as common in commercial real estate. You certainly see it a lot more in residential, right? People buy a house, they fix it up, they immediately turn around and sell it. Well, if you're 
buying and selling real estate, you know, you're no different than a convenience store that is buying Twinkies to put <laughs> on the shelf for the purpose of reselling them, right? Yeah. Um, so you, you need to make sure that you're not really treating the real estate as inventory because if you're buying it with the immediate intent of reselling it, that doesn't meet the held for investment or used within your trader business. It really is more like inventory. And if you're a dealer, then you can't perform an exchange on those assets that are treated as inventory. Right. As you just pay ordinary tax, you can't do a 1031, right? And what about a developer that's uh, bought land and he's he's developed his individual lots and he's building houses? He's, is, he a, is he a dealer? Um, when he sells those individual houses, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a step back, maybe the developer is building houses in phase one and two, but he's got a 250 acre phase three that he sells off to another national builder. Well, as long as he's held that on his book. So this is where your accountant's really important because what you tell the IRS, that story is on your tax return every year. So if you reflect that that third phase of the development was held as an investment and not as inventory, and let's say he holds it for two years and sells it to a big national builder, well now that can be treated as an investment even though he is selling inventory in phase one and phase two when he sells lots. And does he have to hold that land a certain amount of time to be able to do a 1031? So one of the, the kind of interesting facts is nowhere in the code does it define a required holding period. It merely says you have to hold it as an investment or use it within your trader business. So the question becomes, how long is long enough? And that answer is really very facts and circumstances uh, related. You know, what are you doing with it while you hold it, right? So you have to look at a lot of moving parts, but the general rule of thumb is as long as you're holding it uh, for at least a year and a day, then most people feel confident it should qualify. If you're more conservative, the answer you may give would be two years. I see. Well, it's interesting that uh, there's that much leeway in what people think and what they might advise. That's the beauty and the, the kind of the, 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 the challenge with 1031, right, is uh, Mike, like much of the tax code, it's really a shade of gray and not necessarily always black and white. Yeah. All right. And if you want more information, uh, visit Ricky's website. It's SEA1031.com and also at BullRealty.com. We have a um, button for tax information and 1031 exchange information. Well, thanks for joining us today. And uh, we appreciate you listening on the radio stations, watching on YouTube. Maybe you're listening on iTunes or the show website, CREshow.com. Please join us next week. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions. Excelligent, building data everywhere. Get Valuate Online Investment Analysis, Apto, your entire brokerage in the cloud, and Build Out, the marketing tool for your brokerage.